continuing completed classics. Fulfilling failed franchises. Reinvigorating reviled rehashes. It's... The Follow-Up Showdown. Do it over October. <laughs> Hello, all you uppers and downers. Welcome to the follow-up showdown to Nerds in Quarantine. I am your ghostly host, Paul Getz, and with me, as often, are some hostly ghosts, Travis McMaster and Lauren Picori. You guys identify as ghosts sometimes, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Just preemptively. (laughs) Wonderful. I thought I had that right. If this is your first time joining us, the way it works is we take a movie with either no sequel or a sequel that doesn't shine quite as brightly as its predecessor, and each take a turn trying to best said sequel. Today, our guests are actually our first returning guests, Steve Clemens and Katie Hoyt. How are you guys? We're great. Yeah, we're shining pretty bright. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Normally how the show works is a winner is declared or there can be a tie, but today might be a little different. Not only are Steve and Katie our first returning guests, Katie remains our only guest to opt to judge instead of pitch. And so today, since she's doing that for a second time, I'm going to give her extra powers. Basically, she will be our studio exec, and she has carte blanche to combine pitches, uh, form writing teams, change pitches, change titles, pretty much do whatever she wants with the pitches she hears. So we'll see how it shakes out. I mean, that definitely gives me a power trip, so I think that's a a good title to have. Thank you. (laughs) This is an episode I am sort of dreading, Uh, the subject of which is 2019's Dr. Sleep, sequel to the 1980 horror classic The Shining. And the reason I'm dreading this is because on both sides, guest and co-host, I was asked if this would be a continuation celebration, aka sequel praiser episode, to which I answered no. Mm. Um, So I have a big uphill battle in terms of pleasing anybody more than this movie did. Now, we can't see each other, but I do want to have on record that I am wearing a t-shirt from my girlfriend's bowling team in which it was a horror movie theme and their team was called The Pinning. Uh, It has bowling pins dressed as the Grady twins on the front. Both my girlfriend and myself were pretty upset at the fact that the pun doesn't even rhyme correctly. But (laughs) Yeah. It uh, rhymes with the, uh, The Simpsons joke. Right. That's true. The Shinnin. The the Shinnin. When they were forming this league, you know, they were looking for uh, team name suggestions, and my suggestion was Split Follows, which I thought was way better. Mm -hmm. Split Um, Follows. Yeah. yeah. Kim's suggestion was Hannah Bull Lecter, which is still a better pun. Clear winner. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh. okay. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm losing already. (laughs) So I got one more. Bounce of the lanes. Oh, beautiful. See, and, and please don't feel the need to stop if anybody comes up with any of those uh, bowling keep, team yeah, horror yeah. movie name puns throughout the episode. Please shout them out. Well, I would also like to go on record um, as saying I am livid that we're not doing video because I am wearing 
my Shelly Duvall t-shirt, uh, and one of my shining carpet patterned t-shirts. I have my shining pillows here. I've got my shining keychain and necklace. I'm just drenched in it. Uh, and I really thought this would be my moment to shine. Yeah. Oh, nice. Now I have seen your shining cardigan sweater. Is yep. that what is that what you're wearing? Because it sounded um, like it's too hot for the the shining cardigan. So I went with my um, short sleeve button up shining t shirt and my Shelley Duvall t shirt from Tease and Scene. We have a shining. We have a shining koozie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the extent of our shining merch. Um, that's okay. I wasn't, I wasn't bragging. I, I understand how it sounds <laughs> when I say it. I just want everyone to know what the deal is. So when I start talking later and you guys are like, is he kind of like one of those basic shining fanboys? <laughs> yes. <laughs> just get out ahead of it. I'd love to know what you think of the documentary Room 237. I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, but... it is so much fun. That yeah. documentary inspired me because it's a lot of fun. I think a lot of it's crazy. I think a lot of it's true because yes. I'm, I'm just that way so travis okay. are you are you up for two minutes yeah 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 yeah. to travis mcmaster go uh okay so wendy torrance is a middle-class regular housewife except that she has a son who is powerfully psychic and a husband who is tragically violently alcoholic um <laughs> they uh, Jack Torrance gets a last-minute, last-ditch effort job being the caretaker for a long, harsh winter at the haunted Overlook Hotel, and he brings his family with him. Um, nobody knows that the boy is psychic, nobody knows the hotel is haunted, and nobody knows that Jack's alcoholism is still making him violently angry, even though he's not drinking anymore. Um, so poor Wendy has to try to protect her son from ghosts and himself and her husband, all while completely alone, as the Overlook slowly drives them all mad. Uh, Scatman Crothers shows up heroically and dies, and uh, they all just kind of escape. It's a pretty simple haunted house movie where at the end they, um, they just get away, and the uh, hotel takes Jack Torrance. Uh, that's probably good enough. Mm -hmm. Moving on, Dr. Sleep. Um, some 30-ish years later, Dan has grown up. He is still powerfully psychic, uh, and he is also powerfully alcoholic. He is um, running from his past, running from himself, running from literal ghosts and demons, all the way to, of course, New England, um, where he meets another psychic little girl who's powerful like he is, and a group of steam vampires who eat psychic energy. Um, and they are coming for Danny and his new friend Abra, and the only way to save them all is to take, them, take the, the main baddie of the steam vampires rose well high there the hat to the overlook itself into the belly of the beast unleashing the horrors of his past the goblin ghoul gang onto her before blowing himself his mother and the hotel sky high freeing himself in a sort of confusing message about suicide <laughs> great oh you nicely two done. Seconds yeah, spare. yeah that was a good yeah. one well done buddy actually I think this is a great opportunity to announce my retirement from the McMaster Minute. <laughs> Thank you. I'm leaving my shoes on the mat. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna edit that retirement out, and we'll yeah. <laughs> yeah a real Kubrick. Um, well, having brought up Room Two Three Seven already, it's a good transition for me to talk about how daunting of a task it was to uh, rein in trivia. 
for The Shining. Yeah. It is such an enormous and widespread task. So please feel free to talk about what you find most interesting uh, as, I, as I do my best to navigate these treacherous waters. So I didn't realize that uh, at the time that The Shining came out in 1980, it wasn't very well reviewed. It was the only of Stanley Kubrick's final eight movies to not be nominated for any Oscars and was actually nominated for two Razzies, Worst Director, and it was the first time the category of Worst Actress was introduced and Shelley Duvall was up for it. Oh my Ooh. god. Yeah, seriously. That's I didn't know the Razzies bit, but but it, speaking of just what you're saying, I guess we realized this last night because we watched a cut of The Shining that was actually edited down by Kubrick himself for international audiences because domestically it had debuted so poorly. So before it released internationally, he actually took an additional 20 minutes out of the film. So that was the oh. cut we watched last 25, night. 25 yeah, it was a significant amount of uh, stuff that they cut out. But like the scene with Shelley Duvall and the doctor after Danny has his, you know, kind of vision in the bathroom before they go to the hotel. And, the, you know, it's where she talks to the doctor about how what happened with Jack and all of that. Like all of that has been removed from the movie. So wow. I, that yeah. seems so pivotal. Yes. Yeah. As a <laughs> yeah. Shining fan, it was very frustrating to watch. Yeah, we were like, what's happening? And then we had to look it up, and that's how we found out. Like, I guess, so they're both considered Kubrick cuts, but it's bizarre. I do know, I mean, obviously, I feel like it's maybe the most well-known thing about the production of The Shining, that uh, Shelley Duvall was put through a good amount of emotional abuse at the hands of Stanley Kubrick, who was not only hard on her himself, but told everyone in the crew, cast and crew not to sympathize with her. He claims to have done this to to get the performance out of her that he needed and has since many times over praised her performance in the film as well as her as an actress so i mean either way not a great guy maybe i would say that performance does stand out as one of the most tortured of all time yeah um, i believe she could have gotten there though yeah doesn't need yeah. to be tortured on on set to get there I guess we'll uh, never know, though. We'll never have seen yeah. that cut of The Shining where she was just flat the whole time. I know that Stephen King was very critical of her performance, as well as her casting, because of the differences between the Wendy in the book versus the Wendy in the film. I mean, also pretty well known is that Stephen King was critical of most of the choices uh, yeah. made by Kubrick for this film, so not surprising. But as a testament to Kubrick being hard to work with, not just in the case of Shelley Long, uh, Kubrick wanted Sli uh, Slim Pickens to play uh, Halloran, but Slim Pickens refused to work with him again after the experience of Dr. Strangelove. Oh. <laughs> More to the benefit of the audience. No offense, Slim, but Scatman. He's great. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Scatman Brothers was apparently brought on by Jack Nicholson, which I didn't know that they were friends. Um, From Cuckoo's Nest, right? Yes, and uh, he brought him into audition, and, and then he was cast. Uh, however, Kubrick's harsh hundred-take directing style did not mesh well with Scatman Crothers either, who apparently, uh, on his next film, in which he was directed by Clint Eastwood, cried on the first day of filming because they cut after one take, and he was so happy. Yeah. The dichotomy um, between a Kubrick film and a Eastwood film, I can't even imagine. Like... 
I don't know if you came across this, Paul, but we also read that originally the shoot was supposed to be 17 weeks and then it went on for over 14 months. Yes, I did. It was uh, more than 200 days. And I I did find out that the uh, Steadicam cinema operator, Garrett Brown, uh, was promised that it would be over in less than six months, uh, at which point he uh, was uh, slated to do Rocky II. The production was less than halfway done after six months, and so Garrett Brown went back and forth between Rocky II and The Shining for the rest of the duration. Oh, wow. Uh, I think it should also be noted, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this already knows, but the Steadicam operator there was also the Steadicam inventor. Very I cool. Know that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, either. Okay. Well, I wish I hadn't yeah. said that first part, because now I'm just sound <laughs> You can edit it out. It's fine. You won't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I did, this was a, a fact that I found fun, but also a bit puzzling. To get Jack Nicholson in the right agitated mood, he was fed only cheese sandwiches for two weeks, which he hates. That one, to me, seems more in Jack's control. I'm yeah. sorry. I don't <laughs> believe for two seconds that anybody has ever had to do anything to agitate Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Also, it only adds more to his psychopathic-seeming nature that he doesn't like grilled cheese sandwiches. You said grilled. You said grilled. They just yeah, said cheese just, sandwiches. That's Plain true. Cheese. I was picturing yeah. more of like a pimento cheese sandwich. Oh, like see, I was picturing cheese grilled cheese. Okay. Well, that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what right. agitation they were getting out of him for what? Yeah, for well, those two I wonder- weeks which scene it was that yeah. they really needed to push him over the edge. So many scenes it could have been. Uh, this was my girlfriend Kim's first time seeing the movie. And, um, it, well, it taught me a couple things. One is not to assume any movie is perfect uh, because yeah. a younger <laughs> generation can come in and just stomp all over it. Uh, even though she did like it. She yeah. was, yeah, yeah, that's how I felt. She could not get over how interesting looking both Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall are. <laughs> Shelley Duvall in particular seemed like to just not compute for her as possible. She has a great look. She did. like a scarecrow. She's great. Dresses like them too. Yeah. They both have an advantage as actors for being instant characters. As soon as you see them, as soon as you hear them, it's like, wow, that's a full person, no matter what they're yeah. saying. Yeah. Uh, um, and yeah. Danny also oh, an interesting looking kid. Yeah, he looks very normal to me, actually. But what, one thing I was going to mention was one thing we found out also that I, is that for the first month of writing the script, Kubrick and Diane Johnson just sat in a room and talked about like Freud and like what would the characters wear and like what would they say and do in this scene. And yeah. that's all they did for a month of writing the script. So Diane Johnson, what I what I found about her, she's an, uh, a novelist. The only of her novels to ever be made into a film was Le Divorce, starring Naomi Watts and Nicole Kidman. Um, um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But she was apparently brought on by Kubrick because she was a, had a doctorate in Gothic studies. Well, they um, definitely did make very fully realized characters, for sure. Because that's one thing we were noticing kind of between watching The Shining and this new movie was just how much more like people they feel like in The Shining to a degree, I think. Yes, I definitely 
have plenty to say about that. But yeah. I, I guess for now, let's. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess let's just talk about uh, about the Shining and just sort of how we each individually feel about it. The Shining is hands down. I mean, and I know a lot of people say this, but it is absolutely probably our favorite horror movie ever. And it's a lot of people's clearly, but we, it's, yeah. it's like a movie that we watch every year and never, yeah, never really grow tired of and always, you know, I mean, it's beyond just being our favorite horror movie. It's probably our favorite Kubrick movie. You know, it's just, I have, I literally have nothing bad to say about The Shining. I didn't grow up watching horror movies. I was a soft, soft child. I wouldn't even walk <laughs> through the horror section <laughs> of Video Unlimited because the covers of things like Man's Best Friend and Ghoulies stuck with oh, me okay. too much. You know, don't, not even knowing the plot, just seeing a couple of contextless images. And it certainly wasn't the bloody children that frightened me. It was the living ghost children. It was Jack mm -hmm. with the axe, belly screaming and stuff. It stuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I found myself, like you guys, every year kind of going, oh, about that time for a Shining rewatch. And it really wasn't until like 2014 or 15 that I said to myself, Travis, buddy, I think you love this movie. <laughs> Have you guys read the book? Yeah, I, I have. Steve has. I, I have not read the book, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the book. I yeah. prefer the movie to the book. The book feels like a really solid first draft of that movie. Um, and then we just cut away everything we didn't need. They went in that book and they stripped out all the history of, oh, how'd this ghost come to be? And, oh, why is Jack, like, how is he losing his mind exactly? Like, what's he writing about? And they stripped all that stuff out. And they're just like, family dynamic. Scary hotel. And that difference, I feel, is clear from The Shining to Dr. Sleep in terms of it, it just being a bunch, a bunch of really scary, really effective, really atmospheric set pieces with a uh, simple but terrifying core story versus a story that is filled with details about how everything works. And comparing it to The Shining, it feels almost, it, even though they're both Stephen King works, it feels like fan fiction for the all movie. All right, all right. Okay. <laughs> Maintain low tones, Paul. We'll get there. <laughs> what do you think about it, Paul? You didn't oh. talk about how you feel about The Shining. Oh, I love The Shining. And I'm yeah. sorry, Lauren, were you going to say something? It's grown on me over the years. Like, I, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> slow. I'm not, like, as in love with it with my fellow co-hosts. <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta watch this international cut then. It's totally nice for you. Come the clocks in two hours. <laughs> I don't hate Shelley though. Kim throughout it is it is, and I know a lot of its criticism up front was because of its uh, slower pace, which I absolutely love for the sake of the Me film. Too. But Kim did do a lot of being like, well, they could have cut that shot. They didn't need. We didn't need to see that plane land. You know that kind of thing all throughout. Oh. I mean, she did like it, and she found it scary. But yeah, I'll let I'll let her know that she'll feel very vindicated. It's so much atmosphere building that movie. So I do think like there is like drawing some of that stuff out does add to the tension and dread. And we definitely clocked that last night when we watched the shorter cut, like the That's the other true. cut does. It, it really does work better when it's drawn out a bit longer. Well, it's funny to think because even like the theatrically released longer cut is shorter than the theatrically released cut of Dr. Sleep. Yeah. I mean, I understand that it's a sort of a different film in its nature and could be argued moves faster. But if you want to talk about cutting room floor, there's an argument to be made on both sides. And I think well, Kubrick wins. 
Well, I think Kubrick <laughs> Sorry, didn't always cutting in the script in the scripting phase. That's true, and I know uh, Stephen King is is a big fan of the Mike Flanagan Doctor Sleep. It's too late Almost. for that, Paul. <laughs> you can't too get on this train what? now. It's left the station, Paul. Get on the Doctor Sleep train. You're throwing oh, eggs I, at the car all the time. You can't. I, I'm throwing eggs. Currently, I'm throwing verbal eggs at uh, uh, Stephen King for being I, like, uh, I like the ones that are I, like what I did. You know, I would like yeah. to say that I, I completely understand Stephen King's position of having written everything he put into The Shining, the book, which is a lot, and then watching like 25% yes. of it on screen and then the whole world going, this is better. I'd be mad, too. Yeah. I, I will say that the dialogue that's left in from the book, The Shining, in the movie, a, a lot of it being Jack's, like, uh, at the bar talking to Lloyd, and, like, I, I feel like you can tell when it's taken directly from the book, and it works. Even though so many of the most iconic things in the movie aren't from the book, the, the dialogue that, that is and that reads Kingian, you know, is made to fit that universe really, really well. So... You know, I think there was some really great adapting at play there, but I do understand just being almost like horrified at everything that was cut. Stephen King's book sounds like it was very much more about like explaining some of the horror to you. And the great thing about The Shining, I think, is that it's I think less is more in horror always, but particularly in The Shining, not knowing that stuff just makes it scarier. Yes. And I have to imagine that King felt pretty vindicated at the time when it came out and everyone hated it initially. So he must have felt very like, yeah. Everyone hates this because it's not like my book. But I think, you know, through the test of time, I'd be curious yeah. if I'd be curious now if King is still like heels in the ground. I do but... know he's pulled back a little, but I know yeah. that part of that is because when he wanted to make the television miniseries adaptation with Stephen Weber oh. and, and Cortland Mead, but Kubrick owned the rights still. And oh. the in order to get that deal to go through, Kubrick uh, made an agreement with him that he stopped criticizing The Shining publicly, with the oh, exception man. of Jack Nicholson's performance. Um, oh, interesting. I wonder why that was the thing he could still shit all over. <laughs> I mean, I know Stephen King's problem with the performance is that it, it makes it apparent that Jack is crazed from the beginning. Yeah. As opposed to goes mad over time in the hotel. But that's still a director's thing, too. I don't understand why. I mean, I, and I don't know that Stephen King took him up on the offer to just talk shit on Jack Nicholson from then on. Maybe that's why Kubrick allowed it, because he's like, well, if you want to, <laughs> you can <laughs> you can rag on Jack. You know, I don't that, know. That dude's got it coming. I mean, yeah. Fine. yeah. In watching uh, The Shining last night, I felt like there were... A lot of very, I mean, there are a lot of very bold performance choices that I think no one but Jack Nicholson can pull off because of his yeah. face and his voice and his eyebrows. It's like they are insane choices, but they belong to an already insane looking man. Yeah. Supposedly, Mike Flanagan, in terms of getting Stephen King to sign off on, on him doing the movie, had to convince him it couldn't be a sequel to the miniseries because more people are familiar with the movie. That that would have been Which, a terrible sequel. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> insane that he had to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be honest, and well, and you know what? I feel like we. I feel like let's just say officially we've moved on to Doctor Sleep. It's All open right. season on Doctor Sleep, um, <laughs> and I question the choice to not 
go ahead and make a Shining remake first before this. Well, I, I will say I, we listened to an interview with Mike Flanagan, and he was approached with Doctor Sleep uh, by the studio, and he kept saying, "I believe the story is he kept saying no um, because he knew how Stephen King felt about." the original and he obviously loves the original and he was a fan of the book and he had an idea in mind to make it a sequel to the Kubrick film. And he said he would only say yes if he could talk to Stephen King and get his blessing. And he did. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Uh, uh, that, that doesn't play for me. I, 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 I understand I'm in the minority on this issue perhaps, but to me, if you're such a fan of the Kubrick vision, I just don't, I just, I could not have been happy having to make this version of the sequel. Uh, because it's this, this rings as more King than Kubrick to me in almost every way. The only things that are Kubrick are getting to use the visual details from the first one. I don't necessarily think that Flanagan was attempting a Kubrickian sequel i think he was i think it's he, intentional that it's more king than kubrick he is in no way going to live up to stanley kubrick's the shining so i do think he intentionally is doing something kind of a little bit his own a little bit king and a little bit kubrick hmm. yeah i would say a lot bit king and a little bit kubrick uh would but there's be some my of himself own. there too like i like to yeah. I, I think he's a really good filmmaker so i feel like there is definitely him in there as well to a degree like <laughs> And that's why, like, I, I do feel like, you know, for him to even have any of his own stamp on a movie, considering that it's coming from arguably, like, two geniuses of their own mediums, is pretty impressive. That is, yeah, Paul. That is fair. <laughs> I do have plenty of respect for Mike Flanagan as an artist. Hush was, was very impressive to me. I haven't seen The Haunting of Hill House, but everybody sings its praises. Oh. From the rafters. We, we just yeah, yeah. our second. I think we just finished our second watch through, and I believe four months. Um, and uh, it is very good. He gets well, me like, and it's not even cheap jump scares. Like, there's something about the way he crafts scenes that completely catch me off guard, and like they do make me jump, but I don't feel like it's a cheap shot. And, like, I agree. Like, he knows how to terrify me. He knows yeah. what scares me, and he does it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and he, I want to talk about that specifically yeah. because I think the, one of the things that. Mike Flanagan does really well as he plays with dark. He plays with dark spaces and uh, and creature creatures and things just just barely in your sight. And in, instead of jumping out at you, you're like staring at the screen. And I think Which it's is so horrifying. interesting. Yeah. It is. It, it, it's truly one of my favorite ways to be scared. But it's so interesting to get him to do The Shining, which is a movie with nothing even close to that. Did did you guys? Did anybody find Doctor Sleep scary? I did um, not. I think no. I would. I would agree that I don't particularly think it's a scary movie. I find The Shining scary. So when those when those goblins show up, I am grandfathered in my fear. But no, I think it has some scary moments. Like like Steve was saying, the playing with the dark. Whenever um, the old lady like comes out of the darkness of the open door yes. of room two seven, that is very frightening. Yeah, um, and yeah. like there's yeah. like she, she. I guess she's probably the scariest part of the movie. I would say to me, the 
scariest part of the movie and only I find it more horrific than scary and hopefully you'll see what I mean when I say when I tell you what it is but when they're killing the baseball boy that's just the most upsetting scene yeah I don't know that I would go as far as to call it scary it's just really it it gets you I remember hearing some story about how when they got Jason uh Jacob Tremblay in that role and they saw his performance they're all like yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, I, yeah. I read that after the movie came out, but they were all like, "Whoa, this is more upsetting than even we thought it would be," because he just like totally like acted the hell out of it. Did uh, yeah. everyone know the fun fact that the spectator watching Jacob Tremblay play baseball is the original Danny Torrance? Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he no. looks. His face is right there. It's just. It's that exact same face. On a skinny bald man with a goatee. That's cool. cool. Looking at his face and just how interesting his look is, that made me almost just sad for the type, to the type of movies that get made. Like I would, because I don't know how good of an actor that is. I can say he sold that spectator part very, very well. But (laughs) uh, you know, other than that, I don't know how big his range is. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, I really wish this guy led a movie, as opposed to Pretty Boy Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor, slam! He's acted in three things, and one of them is Dr. Sleep. <laughs> and one of them is The Shining. Um, He's probably good with, with whatever his, his life is at, at this point. Yeah. Oh, one, one thing, though, jumping back to The Shining for a second, one thing that, uh, that I thought was really cool that I didn't know, uh, Stanley Kubrick did not let Danny Lloyd in on the fact that this was a horror movie. He protected him from that fact and convinced him they were working on a family drama. And he, it wasn't until he was 17 that he saw the movie and sort of realized the truth. But in watching all of his scenes through that lens, you, I could see it, you know? Like, even Jack in his scariest moments with Danny is doing it not looking at him. He, yeah. So I, I could see all, everyone on set being aware that it's like, hey... Just so you know, when you do a scene with this kid, it's a family drama. You know? I'd, I'd love to know, though, what the direction was given when it was like for any Tony scenes or when he's looking horrified at the bloody bodies at the end of a hallway. Like what part of the family movie? I'm just so curious how he pulled some of the performance out of him if that was the case. My guess would be the bloody bodies. You know, he didn't he wasn't shown. He was just probably no, told. Yeah cover your face yeah. with your you know um yeah and but i but the tony thing is is it i think yeah i could see the it's your imaginary friend who lives in your mouth thing making sense to a kid but once tony takes over that's a yeah. harder thing yeah, yeah to explain incidentally i can do a really good tony impression re- we uh, realized recently so if anybody <laughs> wants to hear that at some point i, think I would think I'd, i would like to hear that now please okay uh, <laughs> i, I I want you to surprise us with it if you can. Oh, that's better. Surprise okay. us. Yeah. Okay. Surprise we, us. Rubbing my hands. While watching Dr. Sleep, we were like, it's so sad that Ewan McGregor never does his Tony voice in this movie. Can you imagine? Oh. <laughs> I'd love to hear him chew through an American accent as Tony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I do want to put be on, go on record as saying I am a Stephen King fan. I'm a big Stephen mm-hmm. King fan. It, it is only <laughs> when it comes to uh, the issue of The Shining that 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 this kind of thing even comes up. And not to say that I don't even uh, that I don't like the book. It's just a very specific situation. And I guess I would say my main issue with saying here here's Doctor Sleep, the sequel to 
1980s The Shining is that what works best through and through in The Shining is its atmospheric. It's like how much it does to build that tension and that atmosphere. And I don't even think an attempt was made in Dr. Sleep to uh, replicate that really at all. I, I would say the scene that came closest to me was the scene in which Danny is confronted by the ghosts of the woman and her son who die, yeah. he left for dead. I wish there had been more stuff like that because that really got me in a, in, in a similar way to The Shining. I think when we went and saw this back when it came out last November, I left it liking it more than I did watching it today. Um, mm. just because I think I had gone in there though with incredibly low expectations. Cause you know, I did love the shining as much as I did. And I was like, even though I like Mike Flanagan, like there's just no way that this is going to, you know, live up to anything for me. And it actually surprised me and I liked it a lot, but today watching it, I think one of the problems I think that the movie has is that Abra, that character, which is in essence, the Danny of this movie, I never actually truly feel peril for her. Like I did for Danny and the shining. Like I don't, I don't ever think she's really going to die. And I think that's maybe one of the one of the shortcomings of the movie, as well as I think there's just maybe a bit too much expository dialogue, which I think is a Flanagan thing. Like it's something he does mm. in a lot of his and a stuff. king thing and a king yes. thing for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I kind of like. I was gonna say the um. I think the tone that's so different that you're feeling, Paul, is like it's just it's it's a different movie. Like the themes in The Shining were like one, like yeah, Denny being in peril and. Uh, when, Wendy being in peril, but also the isolation. Like the theme of that movie yeah. is like basically isolation. And Doctor Sleep, it just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't deal with that. It's a whole different monster. Yeah. And mm -hmm. as far as Abra goes, I I actually kind of like that she is like she's brave and strong and in control. I think you know you don't you don't super see that a lot with children. Yeah. So I, I actually I, I like that. Whereas Danny was afraid of all of this ghost stuff and not understanding as a child. That's where Abra shines as a strong child, a child who can defend herself. And that's why Danny wants, Dan, wants to help her because he's, at first he tells her to hide her shine like he did because he's afraid. And then he sees like, oh no, you're not afraid. You're meant to go out and fight the darkness. I hid from the darkness and drank it away. To the point of Dr. Sleep not being scary versus The Shining being scary, I would just say that I yeah. also was not scared of the bad guys. You know, it it's, was it's hard to be scared of the bad guys when they're shopping at the grocery store like normal people. <laughs> like that yeah. scene is always kind of jumps out at me. I'm like, oh, yeah, this, I'm really not scared of her right now. But I think Rebecca Ferguson is maybe my favorite part of the movie. So like for me to say that I'm not scared by them, it's true. But I, I also find her the best part. If <laughs> I could jump in right before Lauren tears yeah, yeah, Rose. Of course. Because oh, I can't I, wait. Oof. I, love, I love her so much. I think she's so great. I think she's a wonderful villain. Last night, I was comparing her quietly in my mind, not talking to Lauren about it, where she is clearly capable and intelligent. She's not, like, insane, malicious, like, killing her own men when they displease her or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but she's also kind of unhinged and crazy. She has, like, a little bit of a pointing a gun at you, monologuing, <clears throat> but then hit you with, a, I'm delightfully mad, you know. You know, she's just, like, yeah. mad and screaming, but she will listen to reason. And I kind of like a villain who's half mustache twirler, half crazed, running around a house yelling. She's mad because uh, because she's desperate. She's, like, driven yeah. by desperation. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like, like Eric Bana in Star Trek. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> She like I think the thing that I really like about her too is that she can deliver these lines about like huge steam and like these really kind of these things that other people would deliver terribly. She delivers them, and I'm like, 
I don't know why I'm not laughing at her right now. Like yeah. somehow she pulls this off. It's hard. It doesn't keep the nature of the from being silly, in my opinion. But no, I don't but find it, I don't find her silly. Though. Yeah. Not yeah. At all. No, I don't find her silly, and I think she also really owns that scene at the end where she, it's like complete role reversal with like Danny is like Wendy backing up the stairs, and she's kind of oh, like the Jack yeah. Torrance present. She plays that so well. Like I'm like God, she's amazing in this scene. She worked for me in that scene. He did not. You and McGregor slam. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I was gonna say like I I remember when we first saw this, Paul. You and I had similar uh like I think identical opinions about the movie. Yeah. And I have since come round on it, and I do think the director's uh, cut is much better because it fleshes stuff out. There's a lot of little, like, cool moments. They're little things, but they really add to the overall plot. But the one thing that hasn't changed is I cannot stand Rose the Hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Rebecca Ferguson. I think she has some good moments, but I am just, she gets under my skin so much. She says, I believe in the extended cut, well, hi there, seven times. Yeah, it is a lot. Every time I hear it, it's just like bamboo shoots under my fingernails. I clocked yeah. that catchphrase twice in the regular cut. You missed but- three more. I believe there's five in the regular. <laughs> wow. I mean, I definitely, what I thought was the second time I heard it, I was like, oh, okay, come on. All right. It's this, annoying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a hard thing to pull off, I think, for anybody. Like, I um, guess she's smug, she's like, she's monologue That's, I think that, that is like the over-explanatory kind of dialogue, though, that I think, that's a Flanagan thing, I think, more than it's a Rose the Hat That's thing. true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, I mean, a- a- atmosphere being number one, but also just in terms of the nature of the story, with The Shining, it is about, for me, in terms of how I experience it, it's being overwhelmed. Wendy is overwhelmed. Danny is overwhelmed. Jack is overwhelmed in a different way by sort of this uh, uh, power and pull that he has to the hotel. Everybody is. And I guess when I think about that and the lack of that for anyone in Dr. Sleep, the first term that comes to mind is underwhelmed. And uh, <laughs> May I speak to that for a moment, Paul? Uh-huh. Well, Without being glad, I, I will I say, Travis, your explanation before about what, you know, Abra versus Danny and all that stuff, I liked it. I, I agree with that on, on a uh, thematic level. It's just a, a cinematic level. I don't know. Well, whether or not it gets pulled off for you is, you know, mileage may vary. This is just how I sort of saw it. Um, yeah. But the way you describe In the Shining is everyone being overwhelmed. I really like how it's, and I have not read the book, so I don't know what is King and what is Flanagan, but how that's extended in Dr. Sleep and why no one feels overwhelmed is because in The Shining, no one knows what's going on. They're just bumpkins or children or insane alcoholics, and they don't know they're being eaten. They think they're just dying. Whereas in Dr. Sleep, all of the major players are either eaters themselves or well aware of what's going on. So their, their overwhelmed nature would not be like, I'm afraid of being consumed, and it's more like, we are. We all have powerful weapons, and it's almost like a cold war. And they're all pointing their guns at each other. So you're less afraid in the woods, and you're more afraid, like in the trenches. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know. That way, it's a sequel. It's a sequel similar to like to Alien, where it's like an alien. The first one, you're like, what is out there? We don't know. Yeah. Like it's there's somewhat a mystery to the first one, and in the second one, it's like. We know what it is. We got to fight it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, another thing I will give Dr. Sleep is there's just no way you're coming out of The Shining not wanting to know more about specifically The Shining. 
And Dr. Yeah. Sleep gives you that 100%. It gives you a whole world built around The Shining, which, uh, you know, credit where credit's due. That's, there it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to just keep being mean. You guys can keep talking about how much you love it if you want. How about Carl Lumley, huh? Carl Lumley is dick hollering, huh? Oh, that yeah. guy, out of the park. You mean his, uh, his Scatman Crothers? Yeah, I thought it was, was you know, like, yeah. like with everyone, like with the, you yeah. know, um, Henry Thomas and uh, I, I don't know who, who plays Wendy, Alex Essoe, yeah. they do a really great job of finding the line between doing an impression of another human being and just kind of inhabiting the character. Yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say, if you're talking about like MVP, the woman who plays Shelly, like she, the woman who's clearly just doing her Shelly Duvall impersonation when she's like, Danny, where are you? Uh, it's yeah, so uh, incredible. Like she has yeah, to be an MVP for that alone. Yeah, I will say both of them were fantastic in terms of what the, the tasks they were given. And his part seems necessary to the storyline. I don't know that I felt like any of her scenes were needed to be in there, to be honest. Ooh. It's a we weird, got a real on our hands. Well, it's just a weird <laughs> in, to do something uh, so bold as recast someone doing an impression of someone from the first one. I feel like you gotta you gotta need it. And the only scene, well, the Scatman Crothers stuff, I think, was needed. And I also think that the yeah. scene with uh, Henry Thomas at the bar was needed. Um, so you, you're just saying you don't it. need the woman. It's your no. official. <laughs> I have. Yeah, okay, I'll I shut was, up. I, I mean, I, but I understand that because... Another man talking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, <laughs> no, but I understand that. There are two sides of the path Danny could take to some extent. is like uh, a guy who uses The Shining well and for good and, uh, and a guy who falls victim to his demons. Both those things are in Danny. Shelley Duvall's is just the, sort of the fear and the overwhelmed sense. And... I don't think you need. He needs to confront that. Like if you're just talking about like what each character represents. Yeah. You can't have one without the other two. I mean, I think it would be crazy to have this movie with only Jack Torrance and not even do anything with Wendy Torrance. That's yeah. true. That's also, and this is maybe gonna I'll shoot myself in the foot a little bit in my defense of the movie, but on a just kind of like monkey clap my hands eight year old level, I want to <laughs> see the scenes from yeah. the movie. I wanna, show me the things. It looks really neat. Yeah. That lady doesn't. Show me more. Yeah. And that is, well, I mean, some of my favorite stuff in Dr. Sleep is the, what I would call shining porn. Like, and like, it's yeah. either the cue of the music or it's the retreatment of like the footage going up to the hotel at the end. Like all that stuff mm. I do like whether or not, you know, it's a little, if it seems unnecessary or not. I liked a fair amount of it. I, and honestly, I liked those actors portrayals of those characters more than I liked the use of the familiar ghosts. It was an overuse of the bathtub woman in particular. And really any shots of the ghosts that we met in The Shining that they're just sort of bringing back cheapened the effectiveness of those ghosts. It was almost like just bringing them out like action figures. Like, remember this guy? Hey, 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 here he is. Yeah. Here he is in your face. Yeah. Can I just speak one thing about the bathtub lady really quick? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just love how the bathtub lady gets her ass kicked by children time after time in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> just right back at it, doing her thing, unfazed. Yeah. <laughs> 
He is tenacious and I adore it. One thing I was going to say to you, Paul, I think the reason that some of that bumps for you is because Dr. Sleep takes everything about The Shining and makes it about people, whereas The Shining took everything about The Shining and made it about a place in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, is what I yeah. would imagine. I mean, to bring it back to the Overlook at all, it's like I understand why they did it, but it it's sort of goes against the nature of what was created in The Shining, which is a thing you don't have all of the answers to. Yes. And that's what yeah. makes it so creepy uh, in so many ways. Whereas this is, well, here's all the answers and here is the yeah. perfect wrap up for oh, all. Of oh, oh, I'm so glad you said that, Paul. I, I forgot to say this at the beginning when we were talking about when we got into Dr. Sleep. One of the reasons I l fell in love with this movie so quickly is, as I said, and as many of us feel, The Shining is one of, if not the scariest movies we had seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I've spent my whole life tormented by benign, empty hallways and hotels and literally any bathtub with the curtain drawn uh, for my yeah. whole life. And what this movie did was hand me an in-canon way to capture those specific ghosts from my childhood. And it was like, Travis, you just think of a box and put the bathtub lady in it. You're golden. It was like free therapy. I was like, I think I'm good. I'll just put them in a box. You just learned how to compartmentalize, which I think therapists would say, do not do that. <laughs> but maybe. Yeah, you'll be fine. Don't worry. The reason this would fall more into sequel praiser for me is because The Shining was so great. There's no way anything could ever even like remotely hold a candle to it. And then this did, which I was like, it deserves to be praised for that alone. Like the fact that it's not just complete garbage is impressive to me. Uh, can, yeah. we, can we talk about the definition of hold a candle to? And what that means, just because, I mean, I'm not, I, I really, I thought that was going to get a laugh and then we would move on. Uh, <laughs> uh, you came to the wrong hotel, buddy. I just don't think it even, I mean, it doesn't even come close. I'm not going to call it garbage I, because I think a lot of uh, talented people made a movie just fine. I just, um, yeah. I want it out of my Shining universe to TBH. Interesting. I'm curious. I'm just curious if we, if any of us think it would work without the shine like if no. does this movie uh, no it doesn't make any sense no i don't think it does i mm. think without it it's just it's without the shining parts i think we would feel the way paul feels about the movie now we'd go it's a perfectly fine movie about steam yeah. vampires or whatever i had a fine yeah. time who cares that is an excellent uh, question steve and to be honest i think everybody's answer fits in my point category because if you're saying it was just fine you know, as to what it was, and the only things that made it exceptional were all these shining fan moments. It's like well, you know, I mean, anyone could do I that. Don't think that's the only. Well, yeah. I don't think that's the only thing that made it I exceptional because I just think yeah. I do think there has to be some credit given. But um, yeah, I, I I can see the argument for both methodologies of thinking. I I guess, but you must think that no shining sequel should exist then, if that's the you case, know what? right. Let's take that wonderful question into. Uh, uh, the transition toward the pitches, because uh, okay. as always, yes, this is a question I want to pose to everybody. Number one, should this movie have a sequel? And to answer your question, Katie, no, in my opinion, yeah. absolutely yeah. no, 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 never, no, no. I mean, I think I would have felt the same way. Yeah. <laughs> like, I get it. It's, a, it's the type of thing when you hear it, you're like, oh, God, really, Hollywood? Like, you're going to make a sequel to The Shining? But, I mean, Stephen King wrote it. 
So, yeah, and I, yeah. I, I will say, the author decided there should be a sequel. I will so, say though yeah. that when I heard that he was writing a sequel, I went, "Oh, okay, that's yeah. interesting." And then when I read mm-hmm. like what it was about, I went, "Oh, no, thanks. I guess I'll let someone else read that and let me know if it's good." <laughs> it's a different animal with the movie. I, I and it's interesting to me that uh, so much of what they tried to accomplish with Doctor Sleep the movie was pleasing everyone because I just don't think that's um, possible. I do wonder cool. what percentage of big Shining fans felt like you guys. Well, I just, the, according to the box office receipts, not, <laughs> not many. Uh, I love The Shining so much, and I think it's one of the, I would almost always argue, yes, sequel, but this, I feel like it's such a perfect piece, that, and you're not going to recapture it, the, the spirit of it, uh, so I would probably say no. But you would sequel praise it, though. Dr. I would sequel praise it. I think what yeah. an impossible task. I'm not. I don't want to yell at everybody who made the movie. I, I think that they tried their best. <laughs> yeah. In a tornado of impossible circumstances, I don't vilify anyone involved. I just kind of want to forget it. <laughs> Katie worked in 3D, and uh, if Doctor Sleep had done better, uh, there might be a world in which. Um, Maybe they would re-release The Shining in 3D, which I would definitely go see. Yeah, yeah The Shining that's... in 3D would be pretty cool. God, at this point, I would see anything in a theater. Oh, for yeah. Me. yeah. <laughs> they actually do screenings where they project the overlay of the movie backwards on top of it moving forward. And they play the audio, obviously, moving forward. But I want to see one of those so bad, but I've never been able to find one. Okay, so then the next question, if you're going to do it sequel or prequel, what's the best way to go? With The Shining. I, you, do you have an opinion, Paul? I mean, nothing could be worse than Dr. Sleep, obviously, so I guess I have to say prequel. No, um, I just mean, uh, or I just wanted to really quick throw out that there is something in development, an Overlook prequel series yeah. for HBO. That right. makes sense. Yeah. All right. I'm done. I'm done. Uh-oh. 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 Wait, what happened? Uh... Travis uh, will fill you in. Oh. Or, or maybe, you'll, maybe HBO will just fill you in later. Oh, I see. Travis, uh, I see. Okay. I can't believe you hadn't heard about that. A script has been around called Overlook, I think, for years in development, but that was also a feature. And who knows? I've not heard anything about a series. I know that the film Overlook was sort of almost like passed on in lieu of Dr. Sleep. Travis is very upset over very here. Upset. He's I mean, a, I should be a little pouty fit. That's a, I mean, that's a that's a fairly easy, you know, a story to grab. I guess I should put on my big boy pants and just do my pitch when it's my time. So the negotiations on that are the co-creators slash executive producers of uh, Castle Rock, the yeah, uh, that makes the uh, Stephen King Hulu series. So Travis, I, were you going to yeah. say prequel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. And I was what, Paul. And what kind of things would you explore in that prequel, buddy? This time I have a proper pitch. I got a prequel pitch. It's called The Overlook. Any ideas yet? So, uh, just for some backstory on this, I found a an official Stephen King short story called Before the Play. It's available online to read. It's a... It was a, meant to be like a prologue to The Shining that basically um, outlines the Overlook's entire history uh, from construction to 
um, the Torrances with a short chapter included um, about young Jackie Torrance and his drunken father beating a loving hell out of him. Uh, so I used that for a lot of this research. I would like to pitch you first the teaser trailer. We, uh, it starts on black screen, and we hear the uh, distant hammering of many, many hammers, like you hear at a construction site. We fade up, and we are in an, a little spot in the forest, in a creek, and we see a sort of Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood type, like oil tycoon looking guy, speaking very emphatically. We don't hear any audio but the, um, but the hammering, and he's talking to a man behind him who is clearly some kind of 1890s architect or something. <clears throat> and as, as we're, we're hearing this distant hammering and we're watching this man, we hear this really, like, kind of Edison-esque rough radio. Uh, we just hear this, this commercial. Um, and it starts, we hear this voiceover and it starts up with this really slow kind of isolate yourself within and don't do without at the grandest resort hotel in America. Standing on the roof of America, with nothing at higher altitude than the sky. At the Overlook Hotel, what you see is what you'll be. What you see is what you'll be. What you see is what you'll... And it just repeats like that. As this commercial is playing, the camera swings around, and we see the bones of the familiar shape of the Overlook Hotel being hammered together by just a massive team of carpenters. Um, and we sort of go into this tilt-shift photography-style look of it. And suddenly everything speeds up, and we see, whoosh, the Overlook get time-lapse constructed, and we see its full form now. As that happens, the sun goes down, and that familiar, shining Wendy Carlos dirge starts playing. And a square moon rises over the hotel. And we get the title card, The Overlook. Mm. And our movie takes place in two time periods. One is 1909 to 1910, the year the Overlook is being constructed. We see Bob T. Watson, who is <clears throat> the guy who built the Overlook and owned it, and we see sort of like him be being the first one to be driven mad by the Overlook. As it's being built around him, he's building it like a cocoon around him and his family. Um, it does eventually. Uh, one of his two sons dies riding a horse by the topiary. Um, his wife starts to complain that she feels like she's competing with the hotel for his affection. Uh, she will eventually die in the hotel. Um, and it's all going to culminate with the grand opening of the hotel, where as uh, soon as the ribbon is cut, a woman faints in the crowd because she thinks she sees someone in the hotel that's not quite human. And uh, eventually a congressman chokes to death in front of everyone. And a young doctor tries to save his life by performing an emergency tracheotomy and just ends up opening his throat in front of everyone on the dining room floor. Oof. Um, so not enough this opening. Um, all the while, while he's doing this, Bob T. Watson, who's a very, very wealthy, eccentric man, is recording his thoughts in his diary, basically, on these wax cylinders. Um, which is also what that commercial we heard in the trailer was. It was meant to be sort of an early commercial for the Overlook that no one has ever heard because he just kept all these cylinders in the attic of the hotel like a Looney Tune. Um, intercut with all of that is our the second timeline, which is 1946, which is the last time the Overlook was publicly open and privately owned until the 70s uh, when it's reopened by bank investors, and that's who hires the Gradys, and we know how that turned out. Um, so the, the new characters, the, pri the meat of our characters for this is going to be in the 40s. It's a collection of radio actors. 
who were hired to do a commercial for the Overlook, but then the Overlook went under. But because everyone who owns the Overlook is rich and opulent, they were like, well, what the hell? Why don't you guys come out anyway? We're having a big masquerade party for New Year's. You guys can just hang out for that. I guess we already paid you. So they all show up, and it's it's a combination of true stories from the Overlook um, about Lewis Toner and Horace Derwent, who were uh, lovers, uh, though Horace Derwent was just sort of like messing with him because he's a bad person. He just like has sex with anybody, and, and uh, then Toner kills himself in the bathtub. <clears throat> Eddie Down is our main actor. He ends up finding, because as he's exploring the hotel while everyone's just partying, because it's kind of an end-of-the-world party. The hotel's shutting down. World War II has just ended. Everyone's kind of like in this weird, mad, frothy celebration. As they're slowly going crazy, you know, the hotel's killing and eating them too. Eddie spends up most of his time in the attic listening to these wax cylinders, getting kind of obsessed with the history of the hotel. And um, and then, you know, da-da-da-da-da, standard shining stuff. He's going crazy. The hotel's going crazy. We're intercutting with footage from the 1910 storyline just to preemptively get the question, why is the moon square <clears throat> to finish it off is the, I don't know if it's a Stephen King choice or if he just works in cycles of 30 years, but the shining's life cycle, if that's what you want to call it, kind of goes by on a 30 to 35 year cycle where it's 1910 is when it opens and then 1945 is when it closes and then 1970s is when it opens again. Um, there's a, so th that is in keeping with the life cycle of Pennywise in it is about mm -hmm. a 30 year cycle. Um, yeah. and there's this really wonderful monologue in it by, I forget the, I forget his name. It's the kid who doesn't end up showing up as an adult. He kills himself and as, Stanley, as an adult. Stanley, Stanley, Stanley Yards. Yeah. has this really wonderful monologue where after the kids are kind of figuring out that something is going on and they're all having these experiences. He just announces to everyone that he refuses to believe it. And they're like, but you get that it's true because we're all seeing things. And he goes, oh, no, no, you misunderstand. I am choosing not to believe in this because it's impossible. And if one impossible thing is true, any impossible thing can be true. And I cannot live in that world. And one of the examples he pulls as an impossible thing is that the moon is square. Uh, and that image just really stuck with me. So I decided that for this movie, in the 40s, in the 1900s, if you're at the Overlook site or in the hotel itself, the moon is square and no one ever references it. Just because, again, just toying with perception and reality as this evil hotel feeds on the worst parts of you and slowly dissolves you inside of it. Wow. That's cool. Whatever. That is cool. That is yeah. Nice. I love the hotel so much in The Shining that it doesn't like any prequel that I would like would have to have the hotel be mainly featured. Also, I like the it reference because Dick Halloran is in it. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. There's yes. a connection. Yeah. In the book. But that is awesome. That is super detailed and I feel like would satisfy everyone. I think a prequel to The Shining is probably would probably would have been a safer route to go. Yeah, uh, I agree. Unfortunately, that's not what I did, and I'm going to go next, just because I'm scared of Steve. Um, and also, <laughs> I'm following something pretty impressive, so, you know, I don't know. I, I went uh, I went for it. My uh, inspiration came from what works time and time again, maybe the best for me in The Shining, which is light, detail, heavy atmosphere, and powerhouse performances um specifically someone like jack nicholson being able to 
you know, go for broke. And, you know, you, you know, if you watch it now, it's sort of a different standard in acting now. You, you could argue that there's some, some over the top in there, but I mean, that's, that's what makes it work in my opinion. I think you have some very definite ideas about what should be done with Danny, and I'd like to know what they are. So mine, uh, no fancy title that I could think of as being better than The Shining Part 2. Danny hasn't shined in years. He used to shine with his wife, Susan, but at some point he lost the ability and their marriage didn't survive. He is now a grown man with two children, an older daughter, Emily, and a younger son, Dickie, the clear favorite whom Danny also used to shine with. Dickie named after Dick Halloran. Danny believes he is watching himself turn into his father. He talks to his children about it, but they don't understand what he's trying to say. But gr they say, but Grandpa was a drunk. You don't drink. Danny has clearly not told them the whole story of what happened. One day, he kills his son, and his daughter walks in on it. He starts apologizing to her as if he's awakened from a trance, but something is off about it. She runs from him, and he catches up to her. She fears for her life, but he appears to fight something within himself and instead runs away, getting into his car and fleeing the scene. Danny drives to the Overlook Hotel in horrible winter weather, but makes it all the same. He is welcomed by Grady, whom hails his recent accomplishment of killing his son, and brings him to the bar where he is served by Lloyd. He seems to quickly fall under the power of the place. He asks to be taken to the caretaker, thinking that he'll see his father. But he is actually introduced to a real-life man nice. uh, who is shown to be a weak-willed man who is attracted and fits right into the darkness of the hotel. He has no family of his own. Eventually, Danny does reunite with his father, Jack Torrance. Danny is lauded as a hero, while Jack is tormented and abused by all of the other hotel inhabitants, of whom we meet a handful more than we, we were given in The Shining. Jack sort of being an underling pleases Danny greatly. His daughter, meanwhile, is horribly distraught and staying with her mother. They are visited by her grandmother, Wendy, whom is having some sort of intense episode and is insisting that Danny's ex-wife come with her. She says she knows about the gift that they share and that they have to save Danny. The three women all make their way to the Overlook Hotel, but get caught in the snow on the way. The crazed Wendy gets out of the car and begins running through the snow, causing the others to run after her, and they get lost in the woods. Danny's ex desperately reaches out to Danny with the shine. Danny himself doesn't receive the message, but Grady senses it, and encourages him, encourages Danny, to go and make sure that the family is taken care of. Danny picks them up in a snowcat and insists on driving them back to the hotel. After all, it's the safest place. So he's sort of now walking that weird sort of line that Jack is walking for most of the movie, where he's not... He, he's, in, he's being controlled by the hotel, but he's not showing it to them. Evil. Well, he, yeah. I would say he arguably is evil, but he's not showing it to them. It's, it's almost more akin to the scene where Jack sees the woman in the bathtub and then goes and tells Wendy he saw nothing. Oh, okay. Mm. So the ride back to the hotel is super tense, especially for Wendy. 
uh, Susan can't, still can't shine with Danny. And it looks, and, you know, the sort of threat of the scene is that Danny is about to hurt them. Wendy sort of goes for broke and asks if she can talk to Tony. This appears to sort of halt Danny in his madness, and he answers, Tony's not here right now. Soon after their arrival at the hotel, there's a lot of details missing here, but these are the broad strokes. Wendy is killed by the caretaker at the behest of Jack, who celebrates his victory even as the caretaker is almost immediately killed by Susan. Danny begins chasing both his ex-wife and daughter through the hotel. The two girls are separated when Susan thinks she sees a vision of Dickie, the son who was killed, running through the halls in the hotel and goes after it. So they get separated. Jack, meanwhile, heads back to the bar, ready to receive accolades for finally having uh, done the deed that he's sort of almost shit upon for never having done by killing Wendy, but is instead chastised for the act. Jack argues that you told me to correct her, and Grady replies, yes, you. The caretaker's will was weak, and she is stronger than expected. Now she is somewhere in the hotel and must be dealt with. Grady takes Jack's drink away. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the hotel, Emily offers herself up to her father as a sacrifice, believing on some level that he won't do it. Right when it seems like he's going to kill her, she talks him down, pointing out that the hotel is scared of him, just like it was scared of Dickie, and that's why it made him kill him. And it's why Grandpa made him try to kill Danny, blah, 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 because they can beat it. She, she even goes so far as saying that she forgives him for killing Dickie. The last stand doesn't fully get through to him, but distracts him long enough for Susan to get behind him and knock him unconscious. Susan moves to escape the hotel, but Emily won't leave without Danny, so they carry him along with them. Jack continues to hunt Wendy, but it is quickly apparent that Wendy, now a ghost living in the hotel, has him right where she wants him. She's sort of haunting him all around the hotel. She leads him eventually to the boiler room, where she proceeds to overload the boiler and destroy the hotel. He can do little to stop it but scream and protest and forever finally die. Then the final scene is Emily and Susan visiting Danny in an institution where he seems happy. Once they leave him alone in his room, he sits on his cot and begins talking to Tony. And that's the end. Nice. I, yeah, because I also, too, I like the idea of them having to return to the hotel, because the hotel is, like, my favorite part of all of it. So sure. I do feel like that's, yeah. Like, I don't... Finding a way to make them go back, you know, is 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 part of the hard part, I think. Like, it's like, how do you get them to ever go back to that place? I, yeah, to me, especially um, thinking of it as a, a sequel to The Shining, especially the way that they leave it in the first one, in which the hotel is still there and is still... yeah. Uh, all powerful. I feel like that, yeah, that has to be done. I, I saw it more as almost like the hotel calling, um, once Danny has lost his shine, calling him as it called his father. Um, but in yeah. a, really a more severe way. I, I like the, Why? um, hopelessness. 
Thanks. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like Him a good killing dower. his son definitely got. I was like, whoa, like yeah. that's why. Yeah. Did, why did he lose the shining? Did oh, Dick Halloran is in the hotel. He tries to appeal to Danny at some point, talking to him and sort of explaining to him that by having a son who also has the shining, he sort of gives a lot of his power to that child. Doesn't mean he loses it completely, but it's sort of muted when it when it goes on. That's interesting. I do like how that mm -hmm. ties into sort of Jack's almost like built a uh, pent up uh, frustration at his wife and child for stifling his potential. Perhaps that's part of it. Like Danny took some of his shining, even if it was something he was unaware of. So I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Part of what I really love about the shining, even though, you know, Jack is sort of gone before he starts to some extent, there is something very, very human about it. I mean, he is essentially picking his vice over his family and over. I mean, really, it's almost like. Everything he does is voiding hard work, you know, yeah. and his family uh, masters the maze and he doesn't. And it, mm -hmm. it's so much about him taking the easy way out, which is a very common, very human thing. And the power of the hotel is definitely a part of that. So I sort of wanted to make it apparent that the hotel is more powerful than sort of can be controlled. However, if you're a better man on some level you could beat it but i don't think danny well, beats yeah. it all that much in my pitch but he does more so than his father steve and i have talked about this in the past and maybe we've read it somewhere on like a think piece on the shining but but a lot of people suspect that maybe jack had a bit of the shining and the reason he was such a full-blown alcoholic is yeah. because of that and he was using it to kind of deaden that and then obviously mm. once he was in the hotel it just completely took over i mean yeah, yeah. as an added reason for the hotel to go after him so as much as they do, that yeah. makes sense. And also, I think even if, you know, The Shining, I feel like, uh, especially in, in terms of how the movie deals with it, is pretty broad in terms of what it is. And uh, mm -hmm. it could almost stand as sort of a, a placeholder for just being a, a, a an intelligent person who believes they deserve more. You know, they have, they have yeah. something special about them. And, you know, what they do with that is really what makes the person. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I brought everyone down, so we'll see how... Uh, no. Hopefully Steve's is a, a comedy. All <laughs> <laughs> the laughing. <laughs> the snickering. Uh, we'll see. I, there might be some funny things in it. Has Tony ever told you anything about this place? About the Overlook Hotel? They create this amazing hotel that's super scary and super terrifying. So I basically, the thing that I got excited about was the idea of doing exactly that, but brace yourselves with something other than the Overlook. <laughs> Whoa! Pass. <laughs> right, I know. I, I was like, oh, I wait, this? No. Katie, um, I know yeah. this might, this sounds a little bit like cheating, 
but I forgot to mention that my dream casting for Danny is Adam Driver. Oh, I was, you know, I was thinking earlier, I was like, who would play these characters today? And I thought to myself, Adam Driver would be such a good Jack Torrance. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're winning yeah. me over with that. For sure. Anyways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go right ahead, Steve. Also, Adam Driver. I'll just get into it. Danny is the, the main character. And I think because we, we already love Danny, we come in, he's a cute little kid with superpowers. Uh, we knew him when he was young. Um, he, but he also had serious uh, past trauma. He was the child of an abuser. Alcoholism runs in his family. Uh, this is all a recipe for a guy that uh, could, that basically uh, could go the wrong way, but we like it. So what, it, so basically I want to play with the central fear at Danny's core. And for Danny, child of abuse parent, his greatest fear is becoming that abuser, similar to what you touched on, Paul. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the place. Danny is the groundskeeper at an old historic prep school somewhere on the East Coast. It's not as secluded as the Overlook, but it's still far off in the country. And it's old. It's like 300 years old. And it's uh, the kids who go there are like mostly Christian. Uh, he occasionally, but as he sort of like, he's more than just like a janitor, he's the groundskeeper. He sort of like oversees the whole site. He occasionally sees strange things at the school, but nothing unusual for him. He sees all his life because he has a shiny. Uh, he reacts kind of weird sometimes, and the other and teachers and administrators look at him like he's some sort of weird pervert, and they uh, think he's only he only got the job because the school principal is his sponsor and is helping him out, which is somewhat true. So the thing I like about the Overlook is it's called like the Overlook, and it's uh and it's funny to me that it has all this history that everyone just sort of overlooks. Uh, <laughs> like it's got all all this like it's like steeped in uh you know killing Native Americans to like build it on their graveyard. It's got it's got all this like history that to me and I think they talk about it in room two three seven is like America. Uh, we just want to forget about our past and just make profit uh, off our hotel. Uh, but this hotel is like an ocean of blood, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to do that with this, with the, I, that's the undercurrent I want to paint with this, with this school. Um, so I definitely want to have a tour in the beginning where, a, where the school principal is giving someone a tour uh, and just sort of talking about the school. Uh, it's a new kid who's come, it's a new kid, uh, like 12 year old girl who's coming sometime in the middle of the school year, like, no, I'm thinking November. Um, and as he's going around, he's saying like, yeah, the school has great success stories. You know, four U.S. presidents went here, uh, but the school is old and it has its share of skeletons in the closet too. He, he doesn't go into much detail on that, but he does talk about, uh, he brags a little bit that, you know, when the school was, uh, in, during the Civil War, we actually quartered a bunch of Union troops, you know, so like some of our history is bad. Oh, yeah, I took, they, uh, it was started, the original school, which is lo no longer there, but the new building is built on top. It was started by uh, like Puritans or Pilgrims or something, and they had their own little like witch trials back in the day. Okay, so the kid, while the kid's on the tour, you're getting all this sort of like creepy, slow dollies through hallways, the teacher is telling this. The kid sees someone down the hall, um, far off down the hall, uh, an otherwise empty hallway, a boy standing there at the end of the hall staring at her. She stares in horror, seemingly normal boy, but we see him again, and his head is caved in halfway, uh, and there's blood all over the hall, and we are, we're reminded of the twins' murder scene. 
she drops her she drops a glass of yoohoo or something that she's carrying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it smashes on the floor and uh and she hears a voice of someone that says it's all right kiddo i can clean this up and then the girl turns and sees a smile of a janitor custodian and it's it's danny this is how we introduce the danny it's basically we get to we get a scene of Danny meeting this girl and he speaks to her with the shining. When the kid show, when this kid with the shining shows up, weird things start. Danny starts seeing more and more of these things at the school. Like it's kind of like the hotel where the shining starts to bring it to life, and these horrible things start becoming more tangible and more scary. Um, and Danny gets a little bit of backstory of this girl from uh, from the principal, and he says, uh, you know, we let her in the middle of the semester because uh her dad killed her mom bashed her head in and he says don't worry the kid didn't see it she was in the basement the whole time but you know like if you see her staring off in space or whatever you know just sort of don't give her a hard time or whatnot um and basically danny through knowing the kid through the shine she tells him i did see my dad kill my mom before it happened danny the themes that this is playing with is is danny her dick halloran or is danny her jack toy um, because as the as the school is coming to life, um, he's getting tormented. The other teachers are looking at, looking at him like he's uh, he's a weirdo. He shouldn't be around. Mm-hmm. And but at the same time, Danny is concerned for this little girl because she's seeing uh, all kinds of horrifying things. Instead of an elevator full of blood, uh, just a hallway full of lockers burst open and blood pours out. Uh, yeah, cascade. Creepy things I want to see. As much as the principal brags about how they quartered Union soldiers, Danny sees at one point out a window a group of children standing around a a young black child in a tree. They think mm. these children have lynched someone. Like this is like not a good place. He looks down the hallway instead of a bear giving a blowjob to a, a old man. He sees a a crying child on a bed as a as a priest closes the door and you know like think bad bad things have happened in this school and it's long long run uh oh i should have mentioned that it was run by catholic priest <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a couple other scenes i want to put in because there's really no plot to this because i imagine it's being atmospheric as Danny fights losing his mind uh the kid because she has no family left she's staying at the school with a couple other kids and miss kendall the counselor over winter break which is normally something danny just sort of watches the school for three weeks during the winter to make sure the boiler uh, <laughs> runs. And it's very Shining-esque. Um, so yeah, uh, in that time, there's a snowstorm. We see all these things that we've seen before. There's a snowstorm. Uh, the kid is attacked in one of the rooms. Maybe it's uh, classroom 237 or something. Danny goes there. Um, but instead of seeing a woman in a bathtub, he sees Dick Halloran. And uh, Dick says, you know, um, he gets a sense that Dick is still in the overlook and it's his fault because uh, Dick died in the overlook. So he should be there. Um, Danny blames himself and he says, don't blame yourself, doc. Girl's in danger. You know what you have to do. Kill yourself, doc. Kill yourself before it's too late. And Danny, of course, is horrified being this. He runs out of the room. This is the worst thing in the world to him. The teacher sees him. is like, this dude is losing his mind. We need to get the And of course, it sends Danny on a spiral. I want to see shots of Danny staring out at the windows at snowstorms. I want to see Danny have a scary fever dream that we don't see. But when he wakes up, 
he tells Miss Kendall that he had a dream that he, his father was here and he dreamt that his dad killed her. And we, and then he slips into first person and says, and when I finished, I killed the little girl too. Here, very quickly after that, devolves into Danny chasing them around with that axe. And then in the end, he makes the turn that uh, that Jack does in the end of the book, which is he um, he let he stalls and lets them escape these ghosts and demons as they're fully alive now, and uh, and blows up the school with a uh, boiler because I want because I liked how Doctor Sleep did that. I just want to steal that ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the title is called The Shining Remains. Ooh, oh, very cool, oh, very God. cool. Yeah. It feels well, like a reboot to me almost. Yeah, yeah. Like and very much a love letter to the original. What I, I like the idea of exploring um using the a haunted history to explore America's sins and demons mm. and stuff. Like the Native American stuff is a big texture of the of the film at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and to me that's like, oh, this is the sins of America and I w just like from a motif standpoint, I wanted to sort of like Parkin. That scene where the sort of the racism comes up a little bit, where they talk about Dick Hallernan coming and they uh, and yeah. uh, Jack refers to white man's burden. Yeah, that's like that's yeah. true horror. It, I agree. It's just yeah. too evil, also. Yeah. like at its core. This movie is working with themes far beyond just like an abusive family situation. It's talking about uh, our history of the expansion in the West and like mm -hmm. and. Yeah. Um, it kind of like it feels like a reboot to me overall, honestly, because it's very much like putting Danny in a lot of the same situations as Jack and just yes. Brant and like using a different locale. Correct. Um, it doesn't have to be a hotel, guys. There are other scary places. Yeah. And I think a prep score, prep score, prep score <laughs> is a really, a really great um, a thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These people at these private schools tend to be rich. Everyone in The Shining, from all these ghosts and stuff, seem like so yeah what, maybe it's the yeah. 20s aspect of it they all seem like rich white people yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely americans graves essentially yeah. yeah and uh i think to me i yeah that was something yeah. that i got lots of thoughts lots of different pitches here guys yeah it's gonna be uh hard for me to thread the needle yeah work your uh studio exec magic katie and give america the shining sequel it, <laughs> it deserves <laughs> uh -oh. While I like the effort to take it out of the Overlook and take it somewhere else, I think my only thing I have I rub up against on yours, Steve, that doesn't work for me is that if you're going to do that, I think bringing Danny into it is harder in some ways, or like bringing the Torrance element into it is harder in general. It's harder, I think, to kind of create a whole new location that also has that weight. The thing... The thing that Steve hit on, though, that I think thematically a Shining sequel needs to have that has Danny Torrance is the idea of whether or not he's going to become Dick Halloran or Jack Torrance. Mm, I think I that, that is that is definitely the duality that should paint like that should his journey after that is absolutely going to be that no matter what. Like right. there's no way his life couldn't become that trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he no longer gets the opportunity to just grow up and become Wendy, just like a regular yeah. normal yeah. person. He his only options are angel or devil. Mm. Yeah, 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 and and that's what I I wish Doctor Sleep had done a little bit more. Like, yeah, and they do they touch on it, but like yeah, it's only really at the beginning. The things that I like from yours, Paul, that because I think if you can, you still have Danny Torrance in it, and you have him, and he's got this duality in him. And, you know, he probably does have a family now, like you've outlined, Paul, mm -hmm. like where 
And for me, I don't know... I think for me, the fact that he kills his son, did you say why he kills his son? The way I saw it was he's over overtaken by the the hotel from afar. It's almost like yeah. he doesn't know. It's something that he does yeah. and then sort of sees the horror of it. It's, it's sort of like after Jack wakes up from the dream, except for that it was real instead of being a dream. I do like the idea of something is bringing him back to the hotel and what exactly is it? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, if the lead up in your pitch would would quite work to get him there just because it's such a big left turn, I think, for him to just kill his son before he even gets to the hotel. And maybe it's more because he's fearful he's going to kill his family. So he's like, well, I have to go back and deal with this. It's been haunting me my entire life. And it's now it's something I can no longer escape. So if I can no longer escape it, why not go back and take it on head on? If that makes sense? Yeah. So you're kind of... I Well, yeah. essentially make it a dream as opposed to reality, where he believes that yeah. he can't avoid the path. I think it's finding a way to have Danny bring his family back to the hotel to do what he thinks is the right thing to do. It's PR. They're like, yeah. the only way we're going to get people to come stay in this place <laughs> is if we get the guy whose dad tried to murder him and yeah. got things shut down. <laughs> So we're reopening the overlook. Yeah. We gotta bring that towards kids. So it's, it's very, this sounds like it's shaping up to be a pretty decent National Lampoon's The Shining. I like it. Well, I did, I did find I in Dr. Sleep, I, like, it, it took me aback to be like, oh, the, the overlook's closed? Why would they close it? And then I was like, oh, because yeah. two murders. <laughs> like, the first one, sure. <laughs> two in a row, okay. I guess we're done. So that's nice of them. I feel like, you know, as a studio exec, I'd probably need to offline for a while and uh, really, truly dive into these. It's kind of hard to, like, figure I mean, out exactly what it is right here. Yeah, I'm afraid we're going to need a, a green light somewhere. Oh, it's one of those things. I was going to say, yeah. the show can evolve. We can just say, yeah. good job, everybody. There shouldn't probably be one. And I'm going to pick one. But it's going to be the jumping off point, I think. Okay. That, but it's, I think yours is the winner, Paul. That is uh, quite a story. You were throwing fuel so on a that. fire yeah. today, I think. It doesn't... You didn't want this, Paul, and I, now look where you no, are. No, it doesn't feel great, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but I do appreciate it. You're crowned the winner. The winner yeah. of the prequel would clearly be Travis. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to compare a sequel yeah. and a prequel here. I think Travis would have should have won. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's all I wanted to hear from anyone, so thank you. <laughs> Thank you, that's um, all I was waiting for. Okay, awesome. Well, let's do Unsung Heroes. Hit it, Paul Jr. Unsung Heroes! Uh, for anybody who hasn't heard this segment before, we point out basically characters or actors who have small roles in the film that don't normally get mentioned, but do add something significant. For Dr. Sleep, I want to shout out Robert Longstreet, um, as Barry the Chunk. And I just like his his folksy... I just trust him, even though he's a steam <laughs> vampire. Just I see that guy, and I'm like, he's probably... Maybe there is candy in that van. I should go in with him. He seems on the level. <laughs> yeah, he did sell that sliminess really, really well. For The Shining, the closest I came to having was, was Danny's Apollo 11 sweater, because yeah. it's not something I see a lot of, whereas I do see the carpet you know, all over the place. Either way, I just think it's a really cool sweater. Nice. I kind of I mm. have one. Okay. Whenever we were watching um, The Shining, I noticed 
There were two extras in the the scene where Jack goes into the parlor, but it's filled with people at the party. And they just, they looked so bored. (laughs) 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 And I noticed them. And I go with that one because Travis took my first choice. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Nice. Well done. I also love that ghosts in the Overlook can be bored because I feel like if they're not satisfied, they at least, it seems like, are supposed to act satisfied, you know, as a part of their ghostly duties. So the idea that any of them could be like, oh, I'm so over this is really funny to me. (laughs) People that stick out to me are the the naked women in Dick Halloran's Florida condo, Uh, the, the paintings. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's just such a specific aesthetic choice. Uh, all right. I think I understand Dick a lot better now. Well, apparently Kubrick specifically uh, put those in to show right off the bat that he is not a saintly person. He wa- like because he's so sweet. I think that he just wanted to go ahead and show that it's like, well, he's not a holy man. You know, just because... And it works. Yeah. It's like he's sweet to Danny because Danny's a five-year-old boy. Yeah. But otherwise, he's just a dude. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I found like an anti... In Doctor Sleep, there was one person I kept my eye on because I I was thinking maybe this is a candidate. But then I didn't like her performance. It was the landlady. Oh, I like the landlady. I feel like I could have liked her more. I should have liked her more. That's what I think. Yeah, you should have. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess before oh, I, I like look- the cat and doctors, I think the cat. Oh, oh, I hope my cats tell me when I'm going to die. What a gorgeous cat. I mean, yeah. they could have gotten any type of cat to work for that role. But the classic Hollywood, it went with a looker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, before I say anything else mean and lose all my friends, I guess we should start wrapping it up. Does uh, <laughs> does anybody have anything they want to plug? Uh, yeah, please continue to uh, wait to listen to The Theater of Tomorrow, uh, my science fiction anthology podcast, and The Hotel, my horror podcast. Uh, we will be coming back. So continue to every single day check your calendar for new episodes <laughs> and listen to the old one. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, I have an Etsy shop. I make custom Funkos and I take requests. Pop that Funko. Very cool. Do you have anything, Katie? Not that I can think of, no. Yeah, I don't have anything. He needs more Twitter followers. Oh, yeah, Twitter. <laughs> I'm WallaWords no, no. at, or at WallaWords <laughs> on Twitter. So you guys, uh, your guys' first episode was the Meet the Fockers episode. I did want to mention that since we did that movie, I've been saying Niche Geet a lot. And uh, Kim wants to kill me. It's Barbara Streisand's like, niche geet, not good, not good, niche geet. Uh, so I've been doing that all the time, and Kim, uh, Kim's really had it. She's right. <laughs> yeah. I've only done it twice to you, and okay. All right, well, thanks for listening. Sorry for all my trash talk. I wasn't even listening to you, Paul. Fine. Okay. I've got Blade Runner 2049 just on the TV on mute right now, so whenever you start speaking, I'm just watching that. Well, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna stop uh, recording so I can tell Steve and Katie that fun Blade Runner Shining crossover fact we learned. So, any fans oh. or listeners who haven't heard that yet, sorry. Bye. On the 
next follow-up showdown. The movie that we are doing today is 1989's The Fly 2 with a guest, my cousin, Will Runyon Jr. It's usually considered an inferior movie, right? I saw it at a slumber party when I was like in fourth grade or something, and then we played Battletoads all night. Oh, that sounds like the so, best. I do have positive associations with it.